Hello and welcome to this, the 48th episode of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus O'Gmacanally, artistic director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, always most importantly, always give me jobs. More recently, a director and a producer here at Rise. I'm a 15-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And this week we are not coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar because we are coming to you live and direct from my hotel room in wonderfully cold Oulu, Finland, right up in the north of Finland. Guys, this is a hell of a long journey away. Um, I think I'm about 150 miles short of the Arctic Circle here, so it's all very exotic and wonderful. Um, We arrived in kind of late last night, stroke early this morning, um, so I'm a little all over the place jet lag-wise, but I'm kind of come to terms with everything, settling in nicely, Um, getting this little podcast ready for you guys to send it back all the way over the airwaves, go and get a little bit of a workout in here at the gym and then uh, go and settle myself in properly. It's all very exciting to be over here. Um, and, you know, I've got to say it again, a massive thank you to Culture Ireland for supporting the Irish Festival here at Olu um, and supporting us at Rise Productions and pr- particularly with Fight Night uh, over the last couple of years. I mean, Culture Ireland obviously are backing us for this and we're backing us for the, the Glasgow tour earlier this year. But kind of because not everybody would know it, when we were doing the reviewed uh, section of the Dublin Theatre Festival last year, that's also bankrolled by Culture Ireland and they're supporting and helping out with everything there. The work that Culture Ireland do is so valuable to Irish theatre in terms of promoting it around the world. Um, and, you know, when you look at the success of, you know, the big companies like Druid and stuff traveling everywhere and the Abbey touring at the moment and, uh, you know, even Pan Pan traveling around the world. These are things that would not be possible without the support of Culture Ireland. They're a gang who do a phenomenal work there. And I'm just eternally grateful to them for what they've done uh, for the theatre industry in general and obviously for us specifically. It's beautiful. So, yeah, here we are in uh, in the wilds of Finland. This is going to be an exciting one. Um, I've no idea how the show is going to go down here although Finland Finglas it's kind of close maybe they'll understand Dan Coyle Jr I hope so we might have to tone back the accent a little bit but we'll get into it it'll all be glorious um what an exciting adventure fight night is going properly global baby this is a beautiful beautiful thing so look as ever we are bringing you this podcast absolutely free of charge we promise that we'll never ever charge for these conversations because we are stupid when it comes to business models but of course we are looking for you to put your money back into Irish theatre the whole ethos behind this podcast over the last year has been to support promote and celebrate all that is great about Irish theatre and as you know by now the simplest way to do that is to go and put your money where your mouth is and buy yourself some theatre tickets go and do that at your local theatre go and support the troops if theatre tickets are just beyond you this week or this month that's fine we understand times are tight go on over to one of the crowdsourcing websites like fundit.ie see if there's a theatre campaign being run over there that you can support donations on fundit start from as low as a fiver and there's always great rewards in return for those donations and then of course there's ways you can support without putting your hand in your pocket Tell people about this podcast. Do it in person over a cup of coffee, over a pint, maybe if you're lucky, or uh, by sharing the link as a Facebook post or retweeting the link on Twitter. As you know, we made that big announcement that we're wrapping up the podcast now when we come up to episode 52, the one-year anniversary. So we'd really like to go out on top. So do please, if you've been thinking about it over the last couple of weeks or a couple of months, you're going, Jesus, that McAnally fella never shuts up banging out about it. Maybe now is the time to go and do it. Go and click, give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Preferably leave us a short review over there. Just a couple of words does a huge amount to help us in our chart position um, and you know go back and listen to all the other episodes we've put out put Peter Daly up there in the charts Pete doesn't have an awful lot going from in his life it's a, it's a sad and lonely existence he leads but every Thursday morning he likes to check into iTunes just to look at the chart positions and when he sees himself there obviously scraping around the bottom of the barrel but when he sees it it, it fills him full of joy so please 
fill Peter Daly full of joy, click on his episode, click the other episodes, put him up there in the charts, make him feel like he has a purpose. Of course, you can always follow us on Facebook. We are facebook.com forward slash Rise Productions Ireland and you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Rise Ireland. So look, that brings us to our guest this week and this one is an exciting one and it's one I've held off on for months and months and months and months until we were coming into this final push uh, towards the end where I've kind of said that this will all be all killer, no filler. Um, And this is an exciting one this week and a really kind of, again, one of those more interesting perspectives on the business because it's the brilliant Jonathan Shanky uh, from the Lisa Richards agency who also happens to be my agent. Um, And Jonathan's a really interesting guy because he has been there and done it all. I mean, Jonathan was an actor for, you know, 10 years, has this huge wealth of experience of being up on stage and knowing how things are run. Obviously had, you know, a parallel career as you'll hear through the podcast with them being so actively involved in the Cat Last Festival down in Kilkenny. So he understood the management end of things as well. Uh, And finally, those things kind of came together and uh, and he came to the Lisa Richards agency and it's uh, he came at a really interesting time at kind of at the peak of that whole Colin Farrell thing going on. So uh, it's a really interesting story. I love him to bits. I think the guy is uh, is a superstar. He's really looked after me very well for a decade now at Lisa Richards, I have to say. And, uh, you know, he has uh, kind of chaperoned and stewarded my career through uh, through many highs and lows. I mean, I think particularly back to, to last year, 2011, which had at the start of the year the lowest point of my professional career and at the end of the year the highest point of my professional career. And, uh, and Jonathan Shanky and the Lisa Richards agency were there with me throughout that whole thing. Um, to support when uh, when the chips were down and also when things were going brilliantly and you know you talk about them coming in and co-producing the the fight night tour all this kind of stuff that they've done they're a phenomenal organization Shanky is an absolute hero of mine um, and uh, and a really interesting guy with a great take on the business so yeah here we go a very interesting perspective on the world of Irish theatre the brilliant Jonathan Shanky the wonderful Mr. Jonathan Shanky thank you so much for coming on the podcast this is awesome it's uh, so strange to be in this office with you in this kind of context but hey let's go on on tape it's very strange yes (laughs) right as we do every week then let's get back to the very beginning at what point did it first occur to you that a career in the theatre might be for you oh right well I sort of fell into it really I was in college Uh, I'd done a bit as a kid in school I won (laughs) the I, I, I realised looking back on it that it was maybe unusual to win the school talent competition when I was about 14 doing the parrot sketch, which I had memorised uh, because my brother was a huge Monty Python fan. Right. And I had memorised the entire sketch. And my friend and I, Nick, Nicky and I, when I was in boarding school, did the parrot sketch for the um, for the uh, talent show. And of course, I gave myself the best part. Of course. Uh, and... Uh, I had, I, I had to write out all the lines because I'd memorised it. And uh, I wrote out all the lines for me and for him. <laughs> right. I, I directed it because I didn't need to learn my lines. <laughs> and we did the parrot sketch. So I have to say, an almost completely bemused school's audience. Yes. Uh, uh, anyway, so that was like, I, I, I'd done that, but I hadn't pursued it particularly. And then I went to uh, the high school in Rathgar, which is really not a good school for that. Well, it certainly wasn't then. It could be great now for drama, but at the time it wasn't sure. a big drama school, so that wasn't a thing. And then I went to Trinity. And I had a friend called Emily Abrahamson, who was uh, Lenny Abrahamson's younger sister. Right. And Emily wanted to audition for the Freshers' Co-op, which is the show they do in the first year of Trinity, to try and get Freshers into the into players. And she said, would I go and hold her hand uh, to this audition? I said, okay. And I was standing in the hall holding Emily's hand, and uh, this man came out and said, can anybody here do a German accent? <laughs> So I went in and did a really bad Kenny Everett German accent. Which, as we all know, is the pinnacle of high art. Oh, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> absolutely. It's going to start at a level. And, um, and the man involved was Richard Cook, 
who was directing one half of the Freshers Co-op that year, and actually Katie Holmes was directing the other half, and it was Katie who directed me uh, in this ridiculous play where there's a guy who takes over a restaurant and he turns out to be basically delusionally convinced that he's Adolf Hitler. Okay. Uh, including me appearing in the full costume in the second half of the play with nice. the map of how we're going to take over the world. That was it, really. I fell into players uh, and it became my society, if you like, in college. I mean, I was a member of other couple of societies, yeah. but it's sort of, whatever reason, I got it stuck into it there. It seems, because you've been name-checked quite a few times in recent <laughs> weeks on these podcasts, it seems that for whatever reason, and I'm sure we end up talking about my class in Trinity as we yeah. go along, that occasionally just a group of people come together, some kind of gravitational pull, and, okay, in the first two minutes of this conversation, we've yep. already named Lenny and Richard Cook. So, yeah. I mean, it seems that there was an incredible bunch of people knocking around. You know, it's funny at the time, and, and I will say it to my younger clients now, is that you don't know who you're working with right now, but you may find in 10 years' time people saying exactly that, you know, yeah. you were part of this incredible crop of people. And, yes, looking back at it, I realised that in my in the Freshers Co-op, co uh, for instance, um, I think in the one next door that Richard was directing... Uh, uh, who was in it? Uh, Dominic West. Was that, that? Yeah, I think Dominic West. <laughs> and well, that might have been the next year, but Dominic <laughs> certainly was in one of them. And yeah. the, in my one, uh, God rest him, Tom Jordan Murphy wow. uh, was in it. Jim Cullerton was in it. Uh, Claude O'Donoghue was yeah. in it. Uh, so, yeah, there was an extraordinary group of people, as it turns out, uh, who, who coalesced at that time. And, and I think college drama societies do that all the time, or college you know, courses in acting do that yeah. all the time. They have this kind of purple patches. So, you know, Rough Magic came out of a particularly purple patch for Trinity and UCD. Yeah. Um, and so things like Fish Amble were born out of a, a time in, in Trinity uh, and actually in UCD in the early days. And there were pigs back. Uh, there was a co, you know, there was two sets of people from two drama societies working to it. So, yeah, yeah, it's a funny one. You don't realize it at the time. You just think this is a bit of crack. Yeah. And, and like, like that at the time, if you're knocking around with these people, it was just these are my college mates. We're having the crack. Totally. At no point are you going, you're the next whoever. I was going to say, you're yeah. the next Parker, but at that stage, you know, immediately, you know whatever else. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, that was the funny thing because I, I realized when I was doing the Freshers Cop that there were other people around me who took it all a lot more seriously than I did. Right. I mean, uh, Tom Jordan Murphy had been a child actor who played Oliver Twist when he was 14 and. Uh, he'd done Betty Ann Norton and that's how he knew Jim and Cloda who'd done Betty Ann Norton right, okay. so they, these guys were when I say serious they were real enthusiasts yeah. you know they'd been doing it since they were kids uh, and I had just kind of fallen into it uh, and it seemed like a way of meeting girls excellent I love that as motivation that's my kind of favourite motivation for it I think that's the best the purest reason to go into acting absolutely yeah. um, so then talk to me and going through that period in players and being around Trinity and whatever else what was the transition then out of that into the real world it was very messy because I was doing pure history I was doing a four year degree in history a real course a real course right, yeah okay. uh, not now they'd say oh it's an arts degree but I was doing yeah I was doing pure history and um I was quite good at it, actually. Uh, so what happened was I, I was put up for skull in the in the second year, in Trinity, right. which I didn't get, but okay. I got exemptions. I mean, I got a very long summer holiday, so that was quite good. And then <laughs> I... Um, so I was kind of... I was doing well in, in, in academically, and I was torn right the way through college between loving do I was doing in players. I found history very easy, so I didn't have to do a phenomenal amount of work to do reasonably well at it. Excellent. Uh, which was handy. So I, even in my final year, I was—I swore off theatre in my final year. I thought, well, I'm going to do my finals. I should take it seriously, get my head down. And of course, I was doing plays right up to the exams. <laughs> um, so uh, what happened then was I got a scholarship to go and do a master's in America, uh, which I did. In a, really? Yeah, I went to uh, Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. for 
well, an academic year and did my master's there. Uh, which what did you was, do the master's in? Uh, in American history and politics. Really? Yeah, yeah. Going so, back how far? Like JFK territory no, or more, Washington Yeah, territory? more contemporary. I mean, I think my, my major thesis was on McCarthyism. Uh, so really? The 1950s. Yeah, it was McCarthy. And I was admittedly combining my favourite things because it was based on uh, McCarthyism and uh, 1950s science fiction films. <laughs> <laughs> in an obvious move. Yeah, it's an obvious, an obvious connection. But wow. I managed to get to, to watch lots of uh, movies in the Library of Congress, and so that was pretty cool. My favourite thing about the McCarthy trials, if anyone can have a favourite thing about the <laughs> McCarthy trials, what <laughs> yeah. a bizarre sentence to start Highlights with. from. Um, the Walt Disney testimony from the McCarthy trials is hilarious. It out Beckett's Beckett. It's the most, <laughs> if anyone, for those listening, Google Walt Disney's testimony from McCarthy trials. It's amazing. Well, but did, yeah, we, Disney we was a very strange Oh, man. man this is, would you ever make propaganda? No, 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 no. But we make all these great war movies. <laughs> but we'll say no more. Um, so what was that year like over there? Was there any forays into... No, and, and I, I, really, I really just I worked my ass off academically right. for a year. Um, and I came out with a, well, it's what's called a, four, a 4.0 GPA, which... No, is, you didn't. I, I did. Did you really? Yeah, 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 yeah. I came out with a perfect score at the end of it, which was, again... The funny thing is, I, I suppose, and my, my tutor in Trinity had also identified that when it came to history, is that I could do it very well in spurts. But uh, yeah. uh, I, I, I kind of knew by the end of my master's, I didn't really have this sort of uh, long staying power that you needed to go for a full postgraduate career. Right, okay. It just wasn't for me. I'm, I'm, too, I'm too easily distracted. Right. So uh, I went and lived in San Francisco for a while. Uh, right thing to do. Uh, yeah, did that for a bit. And then I came home and started... I think even I look, as I look back and I quite half-heartedly started a PhD in Trinity and I taught there for a year, right. uh, you know, as a tutor, yeah. seminars and tutorials and whatnot. And I was running out of steam okay. then. Uh, I sort of burnt out a little bit in America as well because they really worked their asses off. I mean, you're looking at guys who are coming out at the end of their first year of their master's in debt to the tune of something like $60,000. So, you know, you don't yeah. really flute around when you're spending that kind of money. Yeah. You know? I mean, I just got a scholarship, so yeah. hooray for Which me. Helps. Yeah, it helped a lot. I got the most terrifying moment of my career was getting, which was just an administrative procedure, as it turned out, but I got the bill. Uh, I was there about three weeks, oh, and Christ. the bill arrived in. And I, sat in my, I literally sat in my rooms. <laughs> I had rooms on campus. I sat in my rooms for the whole day, just going, I oh, know we've got this all wrong. Oh, wow. And I'm... I'm going to bankrupt my parents. What's going to happen? What am I going to do? Eventually, I took it down to accounts the following day, I think, having not slept for about 24 hours in a very small voice. Went, I have this bill. They said, oh, that's all approved. And it was fine. Wow. So, yeah, they, I worked very hard. And anyway, I, I, I came back to, to Trinity to do the PhD. And then Richard Cook said he had a friend who was directing a play who was Connell Morrison. And uh, wow. Richard, at that stage, was running Bickerstaff, the yeah. company out of clear as pub in Kilkenny a fine spot and I met Connell I know I auditioned for him and uh, then I had to go and tell my supervisor that I was going down to Kilkenny to do a play in the back of a pub <laughs> when it wasn't going to be available for tutorials the following year wow so uh, yeah I, I made a couple of decent stamps at getting away from the theatre business yeah fairness. you certainly sound like you did yeah. your best man <laughs> and for family friends the response of walking away from a PhD was that yeah going... I look back at my my parents were incredibly sanguine about the whole thing and I think that was partially because and it was I mean testament to, to I mean I think dad was slightly perturbed by it right but 
the, the, the fact was I had had an academic, academically it had been quite easy for me all along. And so they were sort of confident that I would figure something out and I'd manage something along the way. Sure. Um, because some of my other siblings, uh, there's a lot of dyslexia in my family and I didn't have it. Right. Uh, but a lot of my other siblings did. And so they had really struggled and really had to drag themselves through an education. And I, of course, had swanned about. <laughs> and so mum and dad, I think, thought, oh, he'll be fine. Let yeah. him off. And I think they thought I'd grow out of it. What was it like worth working with Connell at that early stage? It was fantastic. It was just really exciting. I mean, uh, I'd, you know, I'd done my first professional job at that stage before I'd left college because I, I got a gig, I should say, in my third year, in the, my, the summer of my third year, I got cast and it was Richard Cook. There is a theme that's going yeah. to emerge. I think we may come back to him at some point. Yeah, who had, who had uh, persuaded or who helped more in use in some casting. Right. And Maureen was casting Wild Harvest for Druid, which I was met for and I didn't get. And then um, uh, I met, she asked me to come back and meet for Lovers, which Lynn Parker was directing right, okay. for Druid. And I did that. That was my summer job in 1989, I think. Wow. So I'd done some, you know, I'd done a bit of professional theatre. Uh, uh, and then this thing came along. And Connell was fantastic because he was just bonkers. Yes. Uh, and he was this incredible energy. And it was a great cast. We had a really good time. It was Steve Blount and Helen Norton and people who were sort of lifelong friends as a result. So, yeah, we had a really good time. That sounds amazing. And so then, was it just a question of, of it kind of picking up and gathering steam from there then as, as any other freelance actor yeah, back and around? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I kind of thought, oh, well, I'm going to do this now for a bit and because uh, I enjoyed it and I definitely didn't want to go back to the PhD, which was yeah. killing me, just the tedium. And... Uh, I had toyed with other medium, like I'd done a little bit of stand-up in college, right? Which had gone three times well and one time so badly that I still bear the scars, okay. and uh, <laughs> and I just thought, well, I can't do that; it's too scary. How different is it a discipline from being on stage? The difference is it's like acting without any form of safety net. Okay. So even if you think now, and you're in a one-man show, so you're as close to being uh, in that situation, I think, as, a, as an actual one-man show as, as a stand-up is, but. The difference, again, is that the stand-up reveals themselves or some version of themselves in a very Versus personal a way. Versus a standalone character. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. And so if the audience rejects that, they reject you completely and utterly in every possible way. And there's no director to blame. There's no rest yeah. of the cast. That's a lonely place set. to be. Yeah, it's a very bad place to be. That's, <laughs> that's the longest time you'll ever spend on stage. <laughs> uh, wow. So yeah, I, I toyed with that. And I always had an interest in stand-up, which mm. is how I ended up back working with Richard Cook some years later. Yeah. Uh, because we had done the show in Kilkenny and myself and Richard had known each other through college and knocked about and um, he was talking about putting a comedy festival together in Kilkenny and I whatever happened to that yeah geez, <laughs> it's a mad idea we had three o'clock and it was literally like one of those conversations you have with a mate at three o'clock in the morning in a pub somewhere and you go oh, that'd be great I'm sure it's like, how much work could it be yeah, I mean it's not like you have to bring in sets or be fantastic if we build it they will come yeah and so but of course he was deadly serious about it right. so uh he was ringing me up weeks later going, are you still interested? And I'd kind of gone, yeah, yeah, thinking, that's probably never going to happen. Yeah. And then within a, I don't know, about a year, I guess a year and a half maybe of that conversation, he was ringing me telling me he'd booked people like George Went and Emo Phillips and Joe Brand. And wow. I'm in my flat somewhere in Dublin going, <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Who? How? So, yeah. And then, we, so I ended up working uh, with him on the festival from 1995 and I worked as a sort of an associate producer of the festival for 13 years. Wow. Uh, which I used to treat it like a gig. I would take three months of my year right. and do the festival. So it was like I was doing it. And I'd fit shows in around it. So it was as if I was doing a show every year. It was just the cat laughs. 
so I did amazing. that for yeah. And what what was it like for you, kind of juggling those parallel things? Because now, I mean, we see whether it's due to the recession or just due to a way of kind of people are looking to make work we get people now who are writers and directors and yeah. performers and whatever else so for you to be juggling a couple of different disciplines like that yeah was that something that came easy to you was it was it, the distraction something nice i did if i think i mean i i, I you know i the job i'm in now requires a certain amount of add for you to be able to do it because you've got to constantly move from one thing to the yeah. other and i i do think that multitasking thing uh but I grew up in the 80s. So I grew up where there was just no money at all. There never had, not only was there no money, but there never had been any money. We didn't even know what it looked like. So, 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 uh, so the idea that you could survive on one thing was kind of, yeah, maybe like in 10 years time. But for now, you know, I, I, one of the things I used to do as an actor was I'd, because I'm reasonably competent at IT, not as competent now as I was then, because now I'm 44 and then I was in my 20s. Yes. But um, I used to sort of do some work as a sort of IT consultant for some of the theatre companies around town. Right. Um, for Brabus and a few other places um, that I would go in and sort out their IT for them uh, as a Nixer. Right. And again, that was just something that kept me going. So yeah, you kind of, that was, it's, it's an 80s thing. There was, the, you know, the idea that, I mean, nobody thought if you were going off to be an actor, you had any hope of ever making any money ever. Right. So you would always think, well, what else can I do? And then you had to balance it because, you know, like any other actor in the early years of that process, it wasn't all I swanned into shows with mates. Yes. I went and I looked for work like anybody else and I auditioned and I didn't get it and whatever. Yeah. And so I worked in restaurants and I did whatever. And there were times when you had to say to yourself, I have to give up this restaurant job now because I'm turning into a very good waiter. Yeah. Uh, and you know somebody asked you at a party what you did and you said I'm a waiter and you go oh right I've stopped doing that <laughs> yes, yeah. I've turned into one um, so at what stage did the did it become kind of a start becoming an option for you to start moving towards the agenting end yeah. of things there was kind of two stages to it actually yeah. and I think you know I acted for about 10 years all told and I think somewhere in the middle of that process um, I realised I was never leaving the theatre business so right. I knew that. That came as a kind of a, a revelation where I went, Archie, oh, no, I'm not going to go off and do something else, whatever that something else might be. I'm doing this now, this business. Yeah. Um, but as I, it was kind of a, a, a gradual process in two directions. One of which is that I got sucked into the world of, if you like, producing and being on the other side of the fence, which was through the cat laughs. Yeah. And that world has its own mad energy and you kind of get your own mad buzz out of that. And it presents different challenges. Um, and... As the work built up for me as a theatre actor, I realised that I was losing some of my love of it. And right, okay. one of the things that happened when I stopped, was when you stop acting, a strange thing happens, lots of other actors say, oh, I think I've given up as well. It's like you've given up smoking. You know? It's like, oh yeah, I'm going to get it. And a lot of my peers who were, you know, jobbing around like I was at the time would say the same thing. Oh, just, I'm going to give up. You're right. And I'm going to do the same. And I'd, I'd say always the same thing to them, which is that if you still enjoy it while you're doing it, you're not going to give it up. Yes. Right? They're not doing it, nobody enjoys. You yes. Get your mind, right? <laughs> but if you still enjoy it while you're doing it, you're not going to give it up. If you enjoy it as much as a real actor does it, if it gives you that buzz, you're not going to stop doing that. Yeah. If you find yourself doing the job and getting bored doing it, well, then you've got to do something else. Yeah. And in some cases, that's you've got to stop doing theatre and you've got to start doing some screen work. Or, sure. You know what I mean? There are other ways of changing it up within your own career. Yeah. 
But in my case, I went, I just got to the point where I was boring myself. And I thought, well, if I'm boring myself, I must, I must be boring them. I can't, I can't ask someone to pay to watch it. Um, what are the highlights or memorable moments that stand out from that time on stage? Then? Are, are there moments that were particularly amazing or, yeah. or, I mean, or particularly awful either? Yeah, and God, yeah, that as well. I mean, I wouldn't give back the 10 years I had as an actor for any money. It was a really fantastic time. Yeah. Um, lots of things. I mean, I suppose my favourite show was probably Terry Flynn, which I would bore anybody about at length if they want. Uh, just because Terry Flynn was one of those big, happy accidents where Colin Morrison was mysteriously given control of the main stage by a, a benevolent Patrick Mason and a cast of 29, I think. Jesus. And 29 people who, who uh, weren't from the main stage in the main Right. I mean, with notable exceptions like Pauline Flanagan and others, but the, 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 most of us hadn't really had a crack at the main stage. There were a lot of actors who you would have seen in fringe shows or yeah. in independent theatre companies but hadn't even been given a go in the Abbey. So there was a great energy about that. And that was quite magical then when that got in the room. Yeah. And we had David Bulger choreographing us. We worked our asses off. I mean, I literally, that is the bloke I ate. That's probably the thinnest <laughs> I've ever been. I, I was like a whippet. As opposed to like a bag of whippets. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and so we, we just had a fantastic time. And it was it was great, dangerous, bonkers theatre where, you know, I played a chicken. Good. Myself and Jack Walsh. And, uh, I love it. What's your theatrical highlight? The time I played a I chicken. I played a chicken. <laughs> and it was my first time on the Abbey stage. And the odd thing was I spent, around that time, I spent about two years in the Abbey between one thing and another at that time. And Terry was one of the first things that happened. But before that, I think I'd played Rumpelstiltskin in The Peacock. Right. And I played a chicken. And then I played... Uh, oh, then we did a show called Shea Mouse, a mad uh, children's play that Patrick, Pat McCabe wrote, which right. was totally bonkers. And, in a shock move. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, and he literally did scare the kids. Like it was. And Sean Rocks was in that, and uh, Frank McCusker was wow. in that, and Gary Cook, and Marco Haller, and all kinds of people. And I played a mouse in it. And I realised after about two years in the Abbey, I'd never played a human being. I, <laughs> I rang my mother. This is a God's honest truth. I rang my, I'd done about two years in the Abbey, various things. And like a lot of people at that point, you get a bit stir crazy in the Abbey because it's, it's just a, a building that sort of gets in on you after a while. And I thought, well, I want to go and work somewhere else. And actors always want to change it up anyway. Yeah. So I thought, I'll go and work for a company somewhere else. And, and Jim was directing Romeo and Juliet right. for Second Age. Okay. Andrew Bennett as the nurse and oh god Robert Price and Ronan Leahy and then it was a great cast oh I know where this one's and, going uh, well you know this wasn't where I played Juliet oh okay that's alright well, I'll get to that if you want <laughs> the, the most Im- probably improbable part of my career but anyway um, so, so Jim offered me um, Benvolio and, best uh, part of the play I still say play, to this nicest day nicest bloke in the world to this day and uh, and I rang my mother. I remember I was in the green room of the Abbey and I, I rang my mother just checking in. She said, oh, how's it going? And I said, no, it's good. I, got, I, got, I just got an offer to play uh, Benvolio. And she said, a bowl? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'd already rung her. She said, I was playing a chicken and a mouse and a, <laughs> and a goblin. Oh, Christ. <laughs> but the conversation with her about Terry was a classic as well because I rang mum to tell her I got Terry Flynn and I could, I could hear her making this kind of mental list in her head of people she wanted to tell that you know her son who they'd spent a lot of time and money on getting educated had finally got a job in the abbey yeah and uh, it was patrick kavanagh and it was terry flynn it was on the main stage and she said what are you playing and i said i'm playing a chicken and i could almost hear the mentalist being sort of crumpled up <laughs> <and> thrown away <laughs> are, are there any horror stories from that time of 
of being on stage. Is there any anything that stands oh, out? Oh God! Well, actually, uh, funnily enough, in the same production of Romeo and Juliet, just a, a kind of a morbid cold sweat in the back uh, moment that I will never forget was in in Romeo and Juliet, and we were doing a second age tour, so sure. it was you know Groundhog Play. Yes. Uh, you're just going, geez, didn't we all do? Oh, we did already do this at ten o'clock, but now it's one o'clock, and so you're trying to keep track of where the hell you are in the play and. Anyway, I may or may not have had a couple of uh, tinctures the night before, and I, uh, I was, uh, I missed an entire scene. Wow! Now the great thing was it was Benvolio and Mercutio in the orchard, right? Okay. Where Mercutio does all the talking, and it was Robert Price who I think was absolutely delighted to discover <laughs> he had the stage to himself. No one to get in the way. It was beautiful. Really, I was actually backstage talking to Andrew Bennett, saying. Did you miss a line in that earlier scene? Because it sounded funny. He's going, no, I don't know. I don't know. I've done this play twice today. I have no idea. And as as we were talking, he went, is that not your scene on the monitor? And I kind of went, ah. And then I looked and went, yes, that yes, is my yes, scene. Is. And I'm not in it. And wow. it, is a, it is a feeling that, it, just that horrible feeling of your worst fears where you've just, I've, I've wrecked it for everybody now. Wow. But Pricey saved the day. That's remarkable. They did, and of course, Jim, Jim was actually in that that day for that show. Of course, of and course. Uh, this is close to as savaging as I've ever had from Jim Cullerton. Uh, he he was very direct about how unhappy he was when I had shown up wow. as contracted. Yeah, I, yeah, I can understand that one. <laughs> when does the magical journey with Lisa Richards begin? Well, it's kind of complicated. I'd um, I'd spent a long time working with Richard. Yeah. On the comedy festival, and he had started to you know uh, nag me is possibly a way but he started to suggest over a period of time that's another way of saying that that's nicer maybe yeah uh, that uh, I might come and work with him in a more kind of full time sort of way and uh, I, I'd kind of and I, I was reaching that it was it was kind of happy timing I remember we drove from Dublin to Kilkenny at one stage in the middle of all that and Richard said look would you not think about coming to work with me and working more in a full-time way in the, in the comedy festival and, and maybe coming and doing some work for Lisa Richards as well. And I had been, at that stage, I'd been in Castaway. Right. Uh, as a cooperative agency, I'd been with Castaway for about, I suppose I must have been with them for six or seven years, and I'd become the chairman of Castaway, and I chaired Castaway for about three or four years, and I got really kind of interested in the agenting end of the world. Sure. Uh, I got quite stuck into it, actually. Yeah. So I'd got a little kind of grow for that as well. So it was, it was that, really. I, in 2001... I, I, and I was at that point where I was constantly busy as a theatre actor. I had very different screen work, but always busy for theatre. I face for theatre, <laughs> radio. But I, um, I, I was doing, I'd been crossed over for almost the last two years of my career. I was crossed over in rehearsals and performance. So I was knocking in 16, 17, 18 hour days, right, okay. six day weeks. And I was still wasn't making any money. Yes. Because it's theatre. Yes. And I was just really, really tired. And I was getting bored. And yeah. I was getting bored doing the, as I said earlier, I was getting bored doing the thing. So I I kind of, I had a show to knock in and a one-man show, or two-man show. God, that's terrible. So what a two-man show that I, I'd done for Alice Barry, uh, which I loved, uh, called Cat Malogen, which was one of my favourite shows as well. It was really good fun and great writing from Alice. And, and so at the end of the, the process, I, you know, Alice had wanted to bring it back and pop it into Andrew's Lane studio. And I said, well, I'll do that and then I'm done. Right. So I did that. And they were very sweet. They made, gave me a big bunch of flowers at the end of it. And I had my little retirement moment. Wow. And I started working on Lisa Richards on the following Monday. That's amazing. So, yeah, it was a bit mad because that was 2001. And I got married in 2001. And I bought a house in 2001. 
and I changed my job in 2001. And so did Sarah, my wife, did all of the same things. Wow. She changed her job too. So they say those are three of the most high-stress things you can do. Absolutely. I did them all in 2001. Man, that was a brave move. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. It didn't feel like it at the time. You know, you make decisions about your life and they, they don't feel like that... You know, you look back and go, God, that was actually yeah. a really big decision. But it didn't feel like it. It felt like, no, all right, this is what I'm doing. I'm doing this now. Okay. How exciting was it to be part of the Lisa Richards Mafia at that time? Because <laughs> it seems to me, certainly, okay, so 2001 to 2002 was the yeah. time that we were all getting ready to graduate um, from That's right, yeah. yeah. And certainly looking around at agencies around town, I mean, I know it was, you're talking about the peak of the whole Colin Farrell thing as yes. it happened or whatever else. And we were going, well, the number one place you want to be is Lisa Richards. Yeah. Did it feel like that from within it as well? I think it was, yeah, it was a very exciting time to be in the agency. It was much smaller. I mean, it was there were six of us in the office when I joined. Right. And that was including Flea and Comedy. Right. And uh, Claire and Accounts. And so there was then three in talent, uh, which there still is. Well, four now because we've got Morris Epstein, so actually four in talent now. Uh, that's an, Anyway, so it was a very exciting time and it was starting to happen for Colin, which was amazing to be around because I joined the agency at a time when nobody really knew who he was. And then we watched, I mean, Tigerlands was just happening. Right, okay. And we watched, I, well, I watched because Lisa did all his business. Uh, it, it developed and it snowballed. And uh, yeah, it was a very exciting time. And, th- you know, to, to I, I suppose the truth is at the time, we, the agency is bigger now and we've diversified in lots of different ways. Um, but at the time we were a, of a comparable size to say the agency, Terry Hayes' yeah. agency. Um, and, and and Terry has, has focused, has maintained her focus on actors only, and that's that's the way she does her business, and she does it very successfully. Um, but we went off in a different direction a bit. So it was, yeah, it was kind of, I realised, I came in here, we moved into this office, the one we're now in on, on, on Leeson Street, we moved in here, gosh, about three or four years ago. And because I'm the IT go-to person, God help me, I had this sudden realisation when we were putting in the computer network and stuff, that there was 14 of us in the office. Uh, wow, and that was a bit of a shocker. Actually, it was that as simple as that. You kind of go, you know, you, know, you tend to count your work colleagues. Yes. <laughs> so you're kind of God. Now that fluctuates, but you know, there's certainly an average of ten, and uh, and then when things get busy and peer pressure downstairs, it can, uh, those numbers go up and down. Uh, and now we have an office in London uh, with Rose and Sarah. Yeah. So yeah, it's yeah, it was an exciting time to be around and to see a side of the business through Colin that. I'd never seen before. Well, it must, because, you know, it, it must be chalk and cheese, because you're talking about double jobbing for two years straight, going, I'm the most successful actor in Dublin, this is great. And then suddenly you're seeing, you know, six zeros at the end of yeah. checks and stuff. Well, I suppose, yeah, I didn't fantasise that I was a movie star, that's for sure. But no, I was a very busy actor. Yeah. Um, and it was, I suppose it was more just the, the madness of that world. And I, the more I've been around it, the more you realise... I mean, it's similar in some ways. The people are still actors, and yeah. they still have the same fears and the same pleasures and insecurities and all the other things, that, and the same joy out of the work, hopefully, like any other actor. But they just live in a slightly amped-up version of that world. So it's very strange. I, mean, I have actors to this day who, who, like Colin at the time, I remember for two or three years, Colin didn't live anywhere. He didn't have a home. Yeah. Because he wasn't in the same place long enough for him to buy one. Uh, there wasn't any reason for him to have yeah. them. He just went from set to set. And that's, oddly enough, becomes quite tough. Yeah. Uh, it could, uh, you know, it's, it's not like it's tough to be a movie star, but if you live in hotels, and my only experience of that was living in not as nice hotels. Yes, to be fair. But touring theatre, yeah. you know, you, you get a sense of actually, you know, 
remember it's Ali White brilliantly bless her recently did a tour and she, uh, she took photographs of the curtains in every place she's, I thought it was genius because <laughs> it just sums up that you know what's new about this hotel room from the last well the curtains are reformed. yeah so yeah it's, it was it was a very it's a very fast paced and interesting world and a, a capricious and a difficult one to survive um, because it's a big machine out there and they will chew you up and spit you out if you're not careful um, and it's hard to be careful yeah. you know yeah, sure Colin is. was like 27 or 28 at that time and if that had happened to me at his age I wouldn't have survived it yeah. I genuinely I don't think I would have had you know he's been through a lot I don't think I would have had the strength to get through in the way that he did in the end yeah. uh, because Jesus Christ it's nuts of course it is well you mean you're throwing money at your girls at you anything yeah. else you can think of yeah. you thrown at yeah. you and everyone telling you the next everyone thinks you're amazing yeah uh, everyone wants to work with you that's gotta be hard to you end up working sane. with people that you've idolised yeah. for a long time and so yeah I think it's it's hard to keep your head on straight in those circumstances but people do you know yeah. Uh, but yeah so that was very different yeah I remember the first day we met was at the showcase from yes. our graduating class yeah. at the Abbey Theatre downstairs in the Peacock yeah. and we uh, so we all came up to go up now and meet the agents that's the right old, the flight river. so I get up to the top of the stairs at the Abbey and like I said to you all I had in my head was number one Lisa Richards that's all I want in my life got to the top of the stairs and literally within maybe three seconds I hit the top of the stairs yeah. you and Lisa come over hello right. I'm Lisa Cook I'm Jonathan Shanky Lisa Richards we'd love to have you on board we'd yes. come and chat whatever else I went this is the most amazing thing of all time. I am clearly the greatest actor of all time. <laughs> I am the next Colin Farrell. This will all be amazing. My number one choice has come up to me within 30 seconds. Yeah. This is great. Nobody else came near me for the rest of the day. <laughs> Every agent in Dublin there, tumbleweed for the rest of the afternoon. has gone, oh, okay. You could have gone, well, I'm glad I got my first choice, but saw anybody. Just, just, just some something. kind of a sympathy thing, even. Nothing. Absolute tumbleweed. We were standing outside taking your CD off and <laughs> give it back. Can't have him. Um, subsequently, as you go through those kind of showcase things, is there anything in particular you're looking for from someone you go and see fresh out of the deity or whatever? Yeah. Or, it, or, or do you have a recollection of someone where you just went, holy Jesus, there's yeah. Paul Reed or whoever? No, or, absolutely. You know. I mean, look, it's, it's one of the things I love about the job because it's a real intangible, Yeah. is finding talent, right? And I... I, I you know, I, I'll take criticism for a lot of things that I do in this job, but I'm pretty good at finding talent, so I'll stand over that. Um, and there are, there is no one way of. Sometimes it's really obvious, Enga. Right? right. Sometimes the, the the bread comes out of the oven fully cooked, and you yeah. go, "Oh, you're ready to go." Yeah. Let's, let's get to you at the bar immediately. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, and sometimes you go, "Yeah, no, I can see it. I think you know it's rough around the edges, or it's this, or it's that." But you think, "Yeah, there's definitely something there." And and beyond that. You know, I'll put it to you this way. Myself and Richard used to tie ourselves up in knots over the years. I used to help to program the festival. Well, Richard booked the acts, but we would we would talent scout together. I remember yeah. doing in Edinburgh one year where I saw 36 comedians in six days. And if you can make me laugh Christ. at the end of that process, <laughs> you better be pretty funny. But um, he, he did more. But um, And so, you know, I, I would have a chip in on, on, on terms of who we might hire and who we might do on occasion. We would have an argument about who we thought was funny, who we didn't think yeah. was funny. And uh, there was definitely a turning point for us at some point about, I don't know, halfway through the programming of the festival over the years where we used to tie ourselves up, I think, going, well, is he this kind of comedian or that kind of comedian? Is it this kind of comedy or that kind of comedy? And as you do it over time, you just end up saying, well, is he funny? Mm. You know, is he or she funny? And, and that's all you need to know. If the, uh, it's kind of an instinct. You kind of go, yeah, they're funny. 
And so after that, whether they're doing musical comedy or a ventriloquist act, yeah, or I mean, we didn't. I think we had a vent once actually, okay. but, uh, and we, we tried to do it. We, we didn't. We were very puritan at first. We'd only do stand up, then we had sketch acts, and yeah. we kind of got less puritan over time. But like Ross Noble is a good example. I saw Ross in oh god, a long time ago. I think it was nineteen ninety six or ninety seven, upstairs, late and loud in the Pleasance, at the end of thirty six shows. It was literally that 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 year that I did that insane number of shows and. Uh, in such a short period of time and I was tired and it was late because it was late in life <laughs> and I, I was probably a little bit drunk and actually it was an amazing bill of young comedians it's one of those things we talk about a crop of actors it's like uh, Adam Bloom and uh, the amazing Adam Hills yeah. who was a client uh, when he's over here and, and anyway and, there were, and we, I knew about Adam Hills already and I'd seen Bloom before and he was terrific and then this young guy called Ross Noble came on and he just did 20 minutes of just nonsense. He did no act at all. He just he just knocked about with the with the audience, and he made stuff up about. It. He made a story about a drinks machine that was next to the stage, and it was completely and it just the tears were running down my face. It was the funniest thing. So and Richard had seen him as well, and we booked and we got Ross. He played the festival a couple of times, wow. but it is that yeah. So you have those kind of moments when you kind of go, well, yes, obviously. And other times you go, well, yeah, no, I think that you know, but it's. Yeah, it's not like there's any one particular thing. Yeah. I think the thing about it is that, you know, as long as an actor is true to themselves in some way in what they do, then that sort of shines through. Right. If they're not acting at acting, if that makes sense. Yes. Uh, if they're really lost in it or really enjoying it. Right. Uh, I remember you amongst one of other, a number of other actors who we would have approached over the years. And I looked at you and thought, he's having a great time. And you were doing it in a showcase where you're not supposed to have a great time at all. <laughs> well, you're supposed true. to have a miserable time. Yes. Uh, but it is that, and that, that, that sort of, I don't know, that, that'll really capture an audience. If there's a real sense of somebody lost at the moment, enjoying themselves and able to you know, communicate that. But uh, yeah, so no, there's no one uh, magic bullet, unfortunately, which there was. Yeah, it's funny there was. What is the best thing an actor can do to get on well with his agent and have them working hard for them and what is the worst thing an actor can do to annoy the shit out of you <laughs> well bribery is good <laughs> <laughs> no I think uh, the short the short answer is to, to get on well with your agent you know we, we do as much heavy lifting as we can at this end and then if you have a sense that you're sending into a room someone who is incredibly well prepared who has worked their ass off who has got their shit together yeah then that's your you know and no you can ask no more than that because as an agent and as an as an actor you know as a client you invest confidence in each other that's that's the contract we have between each other is the confidence in each other and so if i can confidently know that you or another client is going to walk into a room and have be on top of their shit then that's as much as you can hope for because I have the confidence in your talent I wouldn't have taken you on if I didn't. Yeah. So uh, it, it, it's really that. And to... There's lots of ways you can hack your agent off. <laughs> <laughs> Allow uh, me to list them for you, Mr. McAnally. Allow me to list them. <laughs> no, I mean, look, there are obvious things. Calling your agent every day um, or bombarding them with texts or emails. It just wears people down. Yeah. So, you know, because we're, we're all multitaskers. and you, But also you're human beings first and foremost. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose you've got to have a sense of your client's confidence in your ability to find work or, or promote them as well. Uh, not staying in touch is just as bad, incidentally. You know, right. it's good to yeah. tune in with your agent every once in a while. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, because you want to feel like you're connected to the person you're trying to promote. Yeah. Um, and then beyond that, freelancing gigs, only because in some cases... 
in most cases, if you freelance a gig for a mate or for a small theatre company with no money or whatever, nobody's going to get grumpy about you know commission issues. But yeah. if you freelance a gig and then I but I don't know about it, yes, then I'll get cross at that stage because yeah. then it's like, well, I was just selling you for something else and I didn't know you. So yeah, but those it's it's it's. That's really it. it. It's a relationships business. And I suppose I, I, either as an agent or as a producer or whatever else you do, or as an actor, you know, those relationships matter. Yeah. And as I was saying to you earlier on, when you talk about the relationships that you build up as a young man or young woman in this business, you don't realize how important those relationships are, not just in a kind of a careery way, but that they matter. Mm-hmm. They matter in terms of meaningful, creative relationships that will deliver things that you love later on. Yeah. Um, and those things really matter. Uh, and so relationships are really important. Uh, I, had, we had a brilliant conversation with an American agent some years ago who had lost a client, which he was actually, I think, quite jubilant about the, the particular client going. And he said, well, you know, he was a, a terrific artist and a total failure as a human being. <laughs> There's something to aim for. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, yeah, it is, it's balancing out those human relationships. And yes, remembering your agent as a human being is good too. Is there any solution to the fact that every actor will be sitting at home thinking they should be playing Hamlet in every show, in every theatre, in every country, probably, at all times? <laughs> and if you're not getting them seen for the lead role opposite Julia Roberts yeah. in the next Will Ferrell movie, <laughs> that you're a total failure? Just you were talking about. <laughs> Again, these are all my own personal <laughs> grievances. Uh, I mean, there, there's no solution to that other than... No, just, there, there, it is know, what it is. It is what it is. It ought, there oughtn't to be a solution to it. Right. I mean, you don't want people to be delusional, but yeah. at the same time, you do want people to have a sufficient ego to be able to get up on the stage and do it, or to get in front of a camera and do it. So in order to be able to, to deliver that creative art, whether you're a writer or a director or an actor, yeah. um, you've got to believe in yourself in a way that almost nobody else will. Uh, hopefully your agent will share your, your self-belief yeah. but you know uh, it's necessary that you have that ambition and that belief in yourself as an actor because you've got to stand up in front of strangers who paid money and do it and that I mean, having done that myself for 10 years I know that takes a lot of self-belief I mean my, my lovely wife who is from Cork is very direct because she's from Cork <laughs> and when we first started seeing each other you know, she'd see me in shows and then I, you know, on an opening night or whatever, and she'd tell me what she thought of the show afterwards. Very honest, very honestly. Okay. And um, eventually I, had, I had to say to Sarah, look, you've got to save all this until I've finished doing the show. Because I know what you're saying and some of it's true, but I've got to get up and do it again tomorrow night. <laughs> yeah. and, I mean, Sarah's a professional actress herself. She knew what she was, she was on about. But uh, yeah, I mean, for me, I, I needed to, I could do the, really critically analyze the whole thing but not until I part of the process for me was convincing myself it was good enough to get in front of people and do it so that ego thing is important yeah man it's a weird one talk to me then about ambitions for the future either for you personally or for the Lisa Richards mafia as I like to term you uh, (laughs) in in general like what's what would be the ideal for you I don't know we don't we've never talked about five year plans or any of that stuff or you know we probably get thrown out of Dragon's Den because I I don't think we have you know I certainly don't think we've, I've certainly never sat down with pie charts and gone, yeah. this is the business plan, you know, first we take Poland, then we go. <laughs> so we, we haven't really done that. But um, I, I suppose what you want to, what, what I want for the agency is that we can continue to spread our wings. So, you know, we're getting serious finger holes now in the UK market and into the American market. And 
that's important because the Irish market has limits. Yeah. It's just by its size. You know, we have a population roughly the same size as Birmingham, I think. So there's, you know, you, you right. Put it in perspective. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? So there's only going to be so much, uh, and actually we're quite busy uh, for our size. I mean, culturally we're very busy. Yeah. Um, and in the areas that most of my work would fall in theatre and film and TV, we're we're, we're certainly punching above our weight uh, uh, for the number of us that there are out there. But having said all that. You know, you need to be able to grow into those other markets because there's more opportunity there. So, you know, we continue to grow, but we've always grown organically. And I think the one thing that I would say it's obvious to me, when Lisa and Richard set up this agency with Miranda, their sister back in the day, mm. that and they're all very smart people, that they have an affinity for smart people and that they have tended to always hire smart people. And that's like, you know, that's the job description. Um, it's not three pages of your, your duties yeah. it's be smart hopefully and that, and I think you know so that's it's grown organically from that I think that's great it's really interesting <laughs> um, what makes you happiest in the job is it going to an audition showcase like that and seeing someone and going holy shit that's amazing yeah. or, or is it you know signing the million dollar contract for someone or, or what is it what what gets you happy in the mornings waking up coming into okay. work okay yeah that's what everybody asks. <laughs> no, um, I think you, you've, you've identified certainly two of them. Finding new talent is always really exciting. Yeah, um, It's exciting because it's a world full of possibilities and you look at this young person and you think, oh my God, look at you, you can do all this stuff. Mm. And what else can you do? And then you find out what else you can do. And it's like watching you doing Fight Night or watching Paul Reed's doing Man of Valor. Yeah. That's really exciting. When an actor who you know really well and who you've supported from the beginning of their career comes out and does something you've never seen them do before yeah. that gives me a real because you go Jesus who are you you know <laughs> why didn't you tell me this five years well, ago it's fantastic <laughs> you know exactly and I was some of my two of my I know it sounds like I'm blowing smoke up your skirt now but there was two of my favourite shows from last year were one man shows and it was Fight Night and Man of Valor and, and maybe that was because I had a personal edge on them as well where I, I looked sure. at uh, uh, and you know Gavin Costick is an old college mate and so is Annie Ryan so you know connected to them in different ways also but, Port uh, Marnock just makes great theatre well clearly the Port Marnock <laughs> posse continues to, continues to grow yeah absolutely but yeah so that's exciting when actors surprise you that's exciting yeah um, or when a piece of theatre surprises you that's exciting but sometimes when you go to a play and think I go to a lot of theatre like I see Oh God, I don't know. There would certainly be years where I would have knocked in 100 shows. There are years when on average I knock in between, say, 16, 70 shows in a year. So yeah. I, I see a lot of theatre. And sometimes you're going to a play going, oh God, I don't want to go out. I don't want to see this play in that theatre. And it suddenly is amazing. And that's great. Really energising. Um, and a sense sometimes that, yeah, finding new talent, finding opportunities for them, and then that moment when you get to deliver really good news, it doesn't happen that often, but when you get to deliver really good news and sometimes life-changing news for a client, that's exciting. That's a buzz, you know, and the American agents are very funny about all this stuff. They, you know, they send you emails to congratulate you. I heard your news. It's like you've had a child. <laughs> you know, it's so, so stoked for you. It's fantastic. <laughs> so, but it is, for, yeah, th those things are exciting. The, the, I mean, the money's important because we're running a business. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think it's, it's not as exciting and that you want to get somebody a good deal yeah. and there are times when you feel like yeah I've got a good and respectable deal and you might you know walk out of the office a little taller at the end of the day on that yeah. basis but yeah those those are uh, and I I think that's not that, that idea of an actor surprising you isn't uh, confined to theatre you know there are moments on film when you kind of go 
wow, I had no idea you could do all that stuff, you know. It's amazing. It's brilliant. Shanks, thank you so much for the time. It's a real interesting insight into that side of the business that's kind of a mystery for an awful lot of people. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. I just hope now that you, I know you've made it public that you're yes, winding indeed, these up. Yes, indeed, we so are winding them I just hope I don't get the blame for being a... Uh, <laughs> Jonathan oh, Shanks took us ages for like an hour and then that was End it. End of story. <laughs> iTunes just stopped, apparently. <laughs> thanks, Shanks. <laughs> all right, so there you have it, the wonderful Jonathan Shanky, such an interesting voice and an interesting take on the business in general. You know, throughout this year-long podcast project, we've tried our best to have as many kind of diverse voices with as many different opinions and different outlooks on the business as possible. And I think getting Shanky's voice in there from a guy who's, you know, like I said, who's been up there and done it all himself and now kind of seeing the business from his perspective within Lisa Richards uh, was an important one to do. So I'm uh, I'm really delighted we got a chance to do it. I'm delighted he had the time to come and do it. I'm, uh, I'm a massive fan of his, as I always say. He's, uh, he's a super, super guy and uh, and has always really looked after me. So, look, that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of what is going on around Dublin and around the country. What's going on around Dublin? The goddamn Dublin Theatre Festival. That's what's going on. So much great work there going on at the moment. Um, you can check all their stuff out on the Dublin Theatre Festival website. Do please check them out. Do please go along. Um, it's a chance to see the best of what Irish theatre has to offer at the moment, but also some nice international stuff as well. Expose yourself to stuff that you wouldn't get the chance to see. Otherwise, do go and do that. Of course, there are many things also going around in Dublin at the moment. Uh, if you look to the Viking Theatre out in Clontarf, um, they have Dusty Memoirs just wrapping up there at the moment, and that will, of course, be followed by a little-known show called Fight Night. We're going direct into the Viking as soon as we fly back uh, from Finland. I think I have about kind of 12 hours in Ireland before I'm back on stage, so one of those crazy ones that I've decided to do. Really looking forward to getting out there, though. It's a wonderful little theatre out in Clontarf. Uh, it's only about 10 minutes out from the city centre on the, is it the 123 bus that runs out that way so uh, no excuse for not coming out and for all uh, my homies on the north side um, it's an easy place to get to without getting the hassle of all the way into town so do please come along and support us out there we are playing uh, for uh, for two weeks out in the Viking which I'm really looking forward to um, also at Theatre Upstairs in Lanigan's um, where we will of course be bringing Fight Night in a couple of weeks time um, they have Joist at the moment and that'll be followed by Dubliner's Dilemma uh, Bewley's Cafe Theatre has Dice Man on in their lunchtime slot and, uh, and AC Productions have Waiting for Godot by Sam Beckett out at the mill in Dundrum. And finally for Dublin at the Smock Alley Theatre, Fast Intent have a double bill of Harold Pinter shorts which look really, really interesting. Uh, I'll certainly do my best to pop in there. As we look around the country, Galway has of course the Galway Theatre Festival going on at the moment with a huge amount of very exciting work going on down there. Um, far too many shows for me to list off here but the easiest thing to do is go and check out galwaytheatrefestival.com where they'll have uh, all the information on all the various shows there. As we head up north to Belfast the Lyric Theatre has of course Connell Morrison's version of Playboy the Western World which is wrapping up very soon uh, and then also they have The Long Road by Sheila Stevenson running there at the same time which uh, looks very exciting uh, and also in Belfast The Mac has Prime Cuts version of I Am My Own Wife with the brilliant John Cronin and I think that's wrapping up this weekend so this is your last chance to go and catch that as we head to the other end of the country down south to Cork the Opera House has Romeo and Juliet from Karkadarka uh, and the brilliant Pat Kiernan what a wonderful company they are uh, and that looks like a really exciting production with an amazing cast I have to say so that's certainly worth checking out if you are around Rebel County so look that is us that is episode 48 in the books man this machine is rolling on but we are coming to an end so there are whatever four or five still left to do uh, all of which will be equally awesome I promise you so look we will of course be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers but in the meantime this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast for Angus Og McAnally from the wilds of Finland I'm Angus Og McAnally We'll see you next week.